0: Good morning, everyone. If you can make your way to your seats, but then remain standing, please. Good job. You follow directions well. My name is Katie, and I get the privilege of reading our scripture passage for today. Um, It's something that we do at Mosaic um, every week. And after I am done reading it, I am going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you guys will respond by saying, thanks be to God. Now, on most Sundays, that's a pretty easy thing to say after this passage, and some of you have read ahead, because we're doing Acts, so you might know what's happening today. So today's going to be one of those days where it might be a little bit challenging to have our same response, but we're going to practice it together and believe and trust and know that this is the word of the Lord, and we are grateful for it. So without further ado... This is Acts 4.36 through 5.11. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the Apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept some for yourself, some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. It is really good to be with you this morning uh, in a warm room, and uh, it was cold last week. It's warm this week, thanks to those of you that helped make that happen, and, uh, and with an extra hour of sleep. Amen. Um, I have have said this repeatedly um, I would like to run for some sort of elected office on single platform um, that I would make this instead of an annual hour extra it would be weekly <laughs> anybody with me no okay I think I love it it would be great it's, uh, it's my wife's favorite night of the year um, and we plan on it and enjoy the extra hour and uh, hopefully you did too I don't know that I noticed anyone actually I, I'm not going to Say the only story I heard this morning already is that somebody uh, instead of setting their hour uh, their their clock ahead one hour they set it ahead by two on accident. So I don't know how that works, but um, anyways, probably wouldn't be good if it was weekly, right? The sun and all that. Anyways. uh, We're teaching through the book of Acts, as many of you know, if you're here for the first time or popping in a guest. If you're joining online as well, thanks. It's good to be with you in this space. If you're watching or listening at a later time, it's good to be with you in this way. Uh, We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and one of the things that when we work through a book of the Bible is that we let God set the agenda, and uh, what that means is that there are certain texts and stories and verses, sentences in the Bible that are awkward, uncomfortable, and we would like to just sidestep and keep going to the stuff that uh, is readily easily obviously hopeful warms our hearts those kinds of things and this is one of the ones that is a little more challenging and difficult Uh, and so we want to be faithful and not sidestep it but actually see what is it that the what good does God have for us even in something as dramatic as this so we're going to do that together over the next few moments but in order to do that I think it's really important that we pray together so would you pray with me and then we'll, we'll look at this story this text together this morning God, as we've done already through song, we, we declare you again as good. Um, as we come into this time and this space, this moment, uh, we, uh, we want to acknowledge that this is, this is your space, your time, your moment, and we, we are joining you. And so in this place and in this time, would you be worshiped? Would you be acknowledged for your power and your goodness, your strength, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your unchanging character? your ability to see and know each and every one of your sons and daughters that you've created. And so we worship you in this place. And Holy Spirit, as we've been doing over these last number of weeks, as we've read your story of the first church, would you move and work in this space right now? Would you move and work in each and every one of us? And as we often do, we pray for both comfort and for conviction. We know that the story that we're looking at today calls us to conviction, and so would you soften our hearts to be ready to receive where you would direct? And Jesus, without you, we, we have only a limited hope, but with you we have an eternal hope, and we acknowledge you as our savior and as our king. In this place and time and in this moment, would you guide us and teach us as we look to your word? It's in your name that we pray, amen. Uh, one of my favorite movies is a uh, 2015 film called uh, The Big Short, and uh, can't believe it's now eight years old. Uh, but it tells the story. It's actually described as an uh, an American biography of crime, comedy, and drama. And many of you know it, but if you don't, it's, it's a uh, recollection and explanation of the financial crisis that started with the mortgage crisis of 2007 and 2008 Uh, and it's entertaining it stars uh, Steve Carell Ryan Gosling and Christian Bale and a bunch of other people Uh, but it's a it's it's a fantastic funny informative and tragic film and I've watched it a number of times I don't know how many times I've watched it For those of us that lived through that, who owned property through that time, uh, and actually, I'm not gonna go into detail, but just to know, um, when I tell people about Abby and I's story uh, of specifically of moving from Southern California to Portland, um, which was 16 years ago, so I, I do not consider myself eligible to be teased or made fun of as a Californian any longer. I'm a Portland, I'm an Oregonian. Um, but that's when I explained to them God's goodness in moving us to Portland at that time, I point to that movie and say, that is exactly our story. That is our story. And so if you own a house and have been through the mortgage process, you, you can fill in the blanks and know what that means for, for us. As a result of that crisis that the movie depicts, um, we experienced some of that very tangibly in our church family. We had a, uh, a family in our church that during the results of that uh, crisis about a year or two after that, in 2009, 2010, had lost virtually everything. Um, that In talking to the husband of that family, he said, we, uh, I had a boat, I had the truck I wanted, uh, we had a house, and we had a rental on the coast, uh, and wife and three kids, and it was kind of idyllic. He went through a divorce, he lost everything. He and his wife actually reconciled, found their way into Mosaic, and He came about two years after being here and said, I I can't believe I have to do this, but I'm at the end. We have worked every job we can possibly work. We have tapped friends and family and they have given us funds and loaned us money and we're at the very end and we don't know what to do, but I cannot keep the electricity on in my apartment any longer. Is there anything the church can do? And we were able to pay his electricity bill for a couple months. Uh, We had a a family a couple, um, a couple years ago, just two months into COVID. Uh, what we did as a church, if you were a part of Mosaic at that point, you remember this. If, if you don't, we um, couldn't meet in this space, obviously, and so we were in uh, what we, we called virtual house gatherings, and we I think there's 12 or 13 of them, and they were Zoom-based, and so we would do a recorded video, and then we would meet on Zoom uh, and and talk about what we heard from, from God and the scripture and pray for one another. And the one that I was in, uh, two months into COVID, we had a, a young single gal who had car trouble and could not afford to fix her car. And within a week, our, our virtual house gathering, though not being together physically, but connected, obviously, phone and email and all that kind of thing, raised two grand to pay for her car to get fixed so she could continue to get to work. And she was needing to get to work even during, during covid As I think of those stories, and there's many others like them, of of a church family that is willing to sacrifice and give to one another to help in the moment of crisis, and a moment of legitimate dire need, I'm just so grateful to be a part of a people like that. And and those are just small stories and experiences that that are meant to be magnified over now 2,000 years to when the first church started that we're reading about. They were to be that kind of people that see a need for one another and to step in and meet that need in a number of different ways, and finances is just one of them. But we want to be a part of that. God actually wants his church to be full of people that are willing to do that and make those kinds of sacrifices. We read a story, and we've already heard it. We'll look at it again right now, of when that was threatened. When, when the first church that was just forming, although it was several thousand people already, spread across Jerusalem and they were trying to figure out what to do and who to be and all these, it was, radical things were happening and people were being healed and people were being baptized and it was a fantastic movement that was just starting. Yet God was deeply concerned to preserve the core of who the church was to be and the character that it was to have. And there was something that threatened the movement of the church and the formation of that first church. And we see it in the story as greed and as lies and deception. And it threatens the church from being who God has called it to be. Be a people that is able and willing and eager to step in and help when those, those are need. So that we actually treat and love one another in a very distinct way so that the world sees a different kind of people. And as we're going to see today, God takes drastic measures when that is threatened or stalled or stopped. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this story, and it, what it does is it contrasts one that's a great example and one that's a very tragic example. And so we're going to look at it again, look at the story, and see these two examples, and then we've got just two questions for us to consider. So if you're not there already, find your way to Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And again, there's two examples. There's one that's a really good example, a shining example, and then there's another one that is a tragic example. Acts chapter 4, verse 36 says this, Joseph, a Levite, from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. Um, So Joseph was nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. Because of the way that he lived, he just encouraged people. And so we have kind of a first mention of of Barnabas here, uh, but he's gonna pop up throughout the book of Acts later on. And so if we were to look out ahead, and kind of form a biography of him, of who do we know him to be, we see this first episode of of Barnabas, first time he shows up, but they name him Son of Encouragement, and that follows true, is that he's the first one to step up and give. He's the first one to sacrifice. He's the first one to see people in need and and do something about it. He leads a church early on that becomes the first church that is non-Jewish, that is diverse. He steps into that mess of people with different ethnicities, and, and he leads that. He goes with Paul on Paul's first, we're going to meet Paul later, Paul's first missionary journey, he's the one that says, hey, I'll go with you, buddy. I'll help you out. I'll help raise money for it. I'll encourage you along the way. I'll care for you along the way. And when there's relational strife later on, as we'll see in the book of Acts, he steps in to go, let me see how I can help out in this. Barnabas is this kind of shining example of of a man that other people want to emulate and be like. And he sells this field and he brings the money, and he just says, here, church, you, you can have it. And the leaders of the church, the apostles, do with it as, as you need. And we don't, we don't know anything more about what that scene looked like. like um, obviously, that's not, that's not something we do as a church. Very few churches, some do it, but very few churches. It's, some churches do it in a different a cultural context. That would just be really weird and uncomfortable, um, and I would not be uh, signing up for that. Um, but he brought the money and set it at the church leader's feet. We don't know what he did. Did he stick around and go, hey, what what you gonna do with it? Or do you be like, here, there it is, I gotta go. Um, I got another field that I'm working on or another piece of land I'm managing or I got somebody to encourage, but we don't know, but he gave the money and walked off. And the church church knows that, they know. Oh, hey, Barnabas doesn't have a field anymore because he sold it and gave it to them. Now, there's some people that want to be like Barnabas. And there's where we move from the really positive example Barnabas into Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter five, verse one goes to the tragic example. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So they did the same thing that Barnabas did. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. So he did almost the exact same thing that Barnabas did, but it says he kept back some of it. So he sold it, and let's just use round numbers, he sold it for $100 dollars. And he kept back a portion. So maybe that was five bucks. Maybe that was 60 bucks. We don't know how much he kept back. But he sold it for a certain amount. His wife knew about it. They made this plan. They were in on it together. And then the word kept back there, it, it sounds very neutral to us. Like, sure, you, you, know, you sell it. You, you can keep it. But the word there actually means he stole, which is, which is kind of interesting. Now, this is obviously a, a record of a story that's happened in the past. And so as they're writing it, they're saying he, he actually embezzled Another way of say it is he he pilfered. He did something dishonest. So he sold the field, but then because he represented it as this is the whole price I got and didn't share that he kept back, he did something wrong. We're going to find out. He actually sinned. He embezzled. He stole. He kept back part of the money for himself. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart, so filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? You owned the land, that was yours. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You could do with it whatever you wanted. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. I, like, I'd, I've never experienced something like this. I, I've never even heard of something like this in like, in like modern contemporary times. Like, this is the very first church and it's weeks, maybe a couple months into the first church existing. And we have the first church scandal. T- today, we don't have to go looking for church scandals, they're all over the place. The people of God, the local church has an immense amount of problems and a, unfortunately not a great reputation for maintaining and living what they speak and teach of their walk, their behavior, actually looking like Jesus, of, of leaders keeping their word and keeping pure. There's all sorts of, of, of scandal and drama all over the place. This is the very, 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 very first one. The church has only existed for a few weeks or a couple months. Ananias comes forward and he's held back some of the money. I sold it for 100, but here's 40, or here's 95, and it's the whole thing. I sold it and here. Yeah, I'm just I'm following in the steps of Barnabas, who, man, we love Barnabas. Barnabas does great things. Isn't he a great guy? I'm just like Barnabas. He sold a field, I sold a field. He brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. I sold the, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Like, look, we're all in this together. We're doing this together. And Peter has this, and we'll, we'll, we learn later in another book of the New Testament that, that Peter, one of his spiritual gifts is being able to, and this is through the Holy Spirit, but it's used as a word of knowledge, but he actually can see things. And so there's debate on this one. Like, does Peter just read people really good? Does he look at people and say, I know what's going on with you? Or is this a, a moment where the Holy Spirit uses Peter? And Peter says, but however it happens, Peter looks at him and he's got the money at his feet from Ananias and he says, what, is, what are you doing, dude? What, what got into you? Why did you do this? I see that you're lying. I know that you're lying. Ananias hears the words from Peter and drop, drops dead. He He dies some young guys come in or probably like, um, uh, I don't know, like um, I- interns at the church or, or helpers wherever they're at, and they, they pick up the body. And in, in Jewish culture at that time, when there, was a, when there was a dead body, when somebody passed away, there was very, very clear ways that you would treat and handle a, a dead body to honor it. And they're not, they're not doing that there. They they wrap him up and they take him outside the city and and they bury him. There is not the normal grieving process and the honor that is typically had for a person. It goes on. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She did not know that her husband was dead. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? What a, what a question of grace. What a moment to go. Peter's like, here's the thing. Peter does not know that Ananias is gonna die. There's no sense that Peter was like, here comes Ananias, here's 95 and not a hundred dollars. Here's 40 and not a hundred dollars, whatever it was. Peter wasn't going like, this dude's about to die. We have no indication that Peter, no, no, this has not ever happened before. There's no sense of, there's nothing in the text that says Peter is like thinking, oh man, this guy's about to get buried. Like he doesn't know. So Peter is probably just as shocked as Ananias is that Ananias is dead. Like Ananias drops dead and Peter's like, we did not have that on the run sheet for this gathering. Like this was not supposed to happen. Like what is going on here? So he's shocked. Now Sapphira comes in. There's nothing in Peter that we read that has any sense that Peter wants to bring judgment to Sapphira. If anything, he's thinking, man, he paid the price. and Ananias paid the price. Maybe, maybe she isn't in on this. Maybe she's, in. and so he asks her, and there's this moment of grace where she could come clean and say, That is, I don't know what he was doing. He asked me to do this. I didn't want to lie. I don't want to lie to you. No, we got, we got a hundred bucks for it. Not whatever he gave you. There's this question of grace. Is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Her response is yes. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who just buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. Now he sees it coming. She has lied. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Whether you're familiar with this story or you're hearing this story for the first time, there are questions that come up and we go in a ton of different directions in trying to process, what, what, what does this mean? Does this happen today? How does God hold us accountable? What does punishment look like today? If that was the church and we're the church, could, could that happen? Why wasn't there more? Why didn't grace look differently? Like, why didn't they get a second chance? Um, where did the money go to? What happened? I mean, who knows where all of our questions are? I want to ask, I want to kind of focus us, if I can, on, on two questions. And the first question is this. It's actually a question that Peter's already asked. Uh, it's, it's up in verse uh, verse four. Here's the first question for us. What made you think of doing such a thing? W- what made you think of, of doing such a thing? And so let's ask it. For, for Ananias and sapphira and then let 's ask it for ourselves, what made you think of of doing such a thing i don 't I don't know of anyone who uh, has sold a piece of property and then, and then given the money directly uh, to the church I've, you know large gifts come in from time to time and they 're from inheritance, and maybe they 're from property i, I, I don 't know but I don't know of this ever, ever happening. And so just so you know, I've never been in this situation where I've asked somebody um, to clarify, that's just not how we roll as a, as a church. And so I've not been in this, but specifically for this, Peter is asking, what led you to do such a thing? And so what he's asking is he's, he's connecting two things. He's connecting the action of what actually happened. And he's also asking what's behind that. And let's call that the motive. He's, he's, he's talking about what did you actually do? And then he's talking about what led you to that. What was, what was going on in you to, to do that? And, and the action is that, that there's to lie, to misrepresent what, what you sold the property for. So that's very clear. You lied. That's, that's a problem. That's not a good thing. That has a lot of consequences. But what's behind that is actually what he's interested in. What, what prompted you to, to do that? And one of the things is obviously I, I want to look better than I I'm actually am in this moment. I want to seem better. I want to seem like Barnabas. I want to do what Barnabas did. I want to look holy and, and sacrificial and righteous, and I want to look like I'm all in. I want to look better than I really look. That was motivating, motivating them. There's this bizarre thing in here that says that, that Satan so filled his heart that he lied to the Holy Spirit. And, and that actually speaks to, to motive as well. It, 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 it paints this picture of them having the Holy Spirit. They're a part of the church. They're following Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit. And yet what they've done is they've, they've compromised their heart and they've created space to listen to a temptation. And so we have this picture of Satan and the Holy Spirit vying for influence. And it's a very clear influence and an influence on a particular part of who we are. It's an influence in a particular part of a, of a human being. It, it's their heart. It's, it's, the, it's the very core of who we are. That when scripture talks about heart, regardless of how you understand heart or how the world talks about heart today, and it talks about it in so many different ways, but when scripture talks about heart, it's this, it's this idea of the, the center of who we are, where we find our identity. Another term that's used is the, the executive function. It's the kind of control center of everything about who we are. And so it's not just the organ, the pumping part, but it's this, this core of us. It's, it's you. And one of the promises of Jesus is that when we follow Jesus, that he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is to, is to come in and to fill that part of us and to over the course of our lifetime. And it doesn't happen in an instant. It takes, takes years, is that we become different people, that we actually become more and more like Jesus. And in doing so, we can become more and more the people that we're created to be. And we know, for those of us that are seeking to follow Jesus, that that is a constant struggle and tension and back and forth of, Paul represents it well later on where he says, I, I want to do these things, but I find myself doing these things. And most of us can relate to that so easily. But Peter has asked Ananias, what led you to do such a thing? What was your motive? What was going on inside of you that you created space? And for one, it was, I want to look better than I really am. I want the recognition. I want the reputation. I want human beings to think well of me because my heart has this orientation to it that when people say nice things to me, when they compliment me, when they look up to me, my heart actually gets filled and I I feel good. And I've actually made more space for that in my heart than I have the Holy Spirit. That leads you and I to do a lot of things that aren't best for us or others. That leads you and I to to misrepresent ourselves, which we all can relate to and we all find ourselves struggling with to different degrees. When we give into that and when we let that happen, especially in relationships here, a part of our church family, what we threaten, what gets attacked or diminished is, is the one in heart and mind that we're actually to be. Last week, the last two weeks we've talked about courage and last week specifically, we talked about when courage gets tested, what do we need? And one of the things is we need the unity of our church. We need to be in relationship with other people where we're experiencing community and that we're unified and the words to describe it that are just a few verses earlier in, in chapter four are that they were one in heart and mind. And there's no way that we can be one in heart and mind if we're deceiving both ourselves and others that these relationships actually gets threatened. They get diminished. There's so much less of what they are and they can't grow. If we're saying, I need you to think more highly of me than is really true of me. And so one of the things that Ananias and Sapphira were doing was at the infancy of the church, they were threatening one of the core characteristics and realities that God was seeking to build and to form in the early church, which was unity in the context of community that one in heart and mind, And that's a, that's a goal for us. That's a target for us. That's a vision for us to become those kinds of people where we live in relationship with one another, where we're known and others know us. And when we give in to self-deception and are willing to lie so that others think better than us, it threatens the very character of the people that God is calling us to be. Greed is another motive and that's just almost too obvious to even address. I need to hold on to a little bit for myself, so that I'll be okay. There's a whole uh, study done on on, on this because it, it opens up this this bizarre scenario that could be happening that we don't totally know. Um, but one of the things is that when when uh, things were sold and money was was uh, accumulated in that in that day and age, and it was uh, particularly with a married couple, um, some think that there was a calculation being done that Ananias wanted out of the marriage. And so he was going to have to pay off his wife. And by keeping back some of the money, he had created the pathway to do that. I don't know if that's true, but what a, what a devious, dark underlying motive that could have been present there. But greed in holding back some of the money so that he could direct and control his life because he had felt secure in having that money. And we all struggle with that at some point or another. But what Peter is asking and what we need to ask ourselves is when we lie, when we misrepresent ourselves, what is it that's driving that? And how do we go not just to what is being done on the action level, but on the heart level, the motive level, uncover that and go, I need to, I need to be honest and open about that. And I need other people involved in my life so that I don't go down that road and create space in in my heart for Satan to have reign and influence. Here's the second question, and it's not direct, directly here, but I, I think it comes up in most of our minds as we hear this story and try to wrap our minds around what a, what a tragic and almost, uh, uh, well, it's, a, it's a tragic scandal that just, it, it's hard to compute that two lives are lost, that two people in the early church are dead because they've lied. And here's the question, why did God punish them so severely on the spot? Like, come on, like, God of second chances? Like, not for Ananias and Sapphira. Like, not in that moment. Why was it so severe? And there's a couple reasons I think are really helpful for us to, to be reminded of and to hold in front of ourselves. And to not to just look back on us as if this is other people, but to say, what if we were in that position? Um, I've I've seen a video and it's it's been passed around and actually I've seen multiple ones like it now Um, but I think it's rather hilarious and I would like to share it with you verbally I'm sorry I don't have it on on the screen but um, some of you will have seen this or ones like it Um, it is a, a video of it's a short video just a few seconds long but it's of a mom with a child in an aisle in a grocery store shopping and I think it's, at, as best I can tell, it's very quick, but I, it's, I think it's at the, the breakfast cereal aisle and the child is throwing a fit. And the child clearly has not gotten his way and has laid down on the ground and is flailing around and screaming and crying and making a scene in a public space. Um, if you're a parent, you've experienced this to some degree or another. Um, if you are not a parent and would like to be, please continue down that road and have children. The dad is there as well. And he walks around the corner, it looks like, and sees this scene and looks at his wife and sees that this has gotten out of control and she's not sure what to do at this point. He lays down next to his son on the ground and mimics him exactly, crying and flailing on the ground, throwing his arms around and screaming and crying. She steps over him, her husband, slaps him in the face (laughs) and backs up. The kid stands right up and follows his mom out the aisle. I just need to tell you that was not me. That has never happened to me. I have not done that, okay? Um, I don't know if that says more about my children or myself, but you you get the point, right? Dad lays down and says, this is what you're doing. Mom slaps him. He can handle it. He can take it. They're in on it together, obviously. They both pop up. Kid gets right in line. We need to understand as children of a loving God that he disciplines us for our good. And Ananias and Sapphira are the ones getting slapped. And this is an invitation and a challenge and a confrontation for us to sit up, get in line and follow our savior. There is no other way to doctor this up and make it look better than it is. This is a sign in the formative infancy of the early church of this is severe, this is serious. Do not do this. Look what happened to them. Please hear that, that there is no sense in that of you will die if you misrepresent what you give. There's no indication in the rest of of scripture that 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 has happened. And in fact, we've all lied before and we're all still here alive. So don't equate the punishment with the severity of the sin but let's not diminish what the sin is and how it's very, it not only threatens the very life of the church. We can't be one in heart and mind. We can't be unified. We can't be a distinct people in a, in a, in a city, in a time, in a world that needs God's hands and feet, his body. The church becomes known as the body of Christ. We can't be that. If we're going to treat lying and deceit and greed as if it's no big deal and it doesn't have any consequence, that it doesn't affect us and diminish the lives that we're meant to lead, that it doesn't diminish relationships and community and influence on those around us, that it doesn't diminish our capacity to be a unique kind of people that the world looks at and goes, Oh, there's something about that is light and hope and peace. What is it? Can you tell me about Jesus? The severity of the punishment is not just for that first church, but it is for us. It's for us to have a story that wakes us up and gets our attention and focuses our eyes and causes us to evaluate our heart and to go, what, where are we at? What am I deceiving myself about? There's, a, there's an immediate impact when this happens and that God actually takes bold action and punishes on the spot in order to elicit this response. And the response is fear of God. And when we hear fear of God, when I say fear of God, when we begin to contemplate like, what does that look like? I I say that full well-knowing that we live in a culture and a time where anything that creates fear or gets close to anxiety We want to completely eradicate. And so if that is your initial reaction, like, oh, fear of God, that's not a good thing, please know you're missing the point. And in missing the point, you miss part of who God is. The God of the universe that holds everything together, that sustains life and creation and existence, that specifically, intentionally, with time and care, made me who I am and you who you are, that God, calls for and invites and deserves our worship and our allegiance because of how different and distinct he is. And in being different and distinct, part of what that elicits in us is fear. Not fear in when we're scared and can't control our breathing. Fear in terms of awe. And I heard it read this way and I, I read it somewhere. I can't remember where I read it, but it stuck with me. That fear of God is awe and intimacy awe and intimacy, that we would be in awe of who God is at the very same time that we have a sense of closeness and accessibility and presence with him, that we don't have awe of him and he's distant and far away. For many of us, we might experience that. That's not his desire. His desire is that he would be close, that we have awe of him, but we can actually stand in his presence, that we can be with him. And the reason is, is because Jesus has paid the price of all of our sin and deceit and pride and greed, and he's paid for all of that. And what we do is we create distance when we try to diminish or deny or hear something from the spirit that calls us to confess and we don't respond. If fear of God and that it says uh, elicited that for all the church and others, that that actually brings us to back to a place of awe of who God is, that God can do that. God can end a human life. And what we what we know about Ananias and is that are part of the church and so likely what happened is God ended their life on this earth and immediately they were with him. It doesn't say anything about them being separated from God. but got in the moment of, of God doing that that the church said, yep, I'm up, I'm ready to go. I want to follow you. I want to be in awe of you and I want to be close to you. I don't want to distance from you. I'm going to stop my kicking and screaming and throwing a tantrum on the floor. I'm here, I'm with you. We we come to this this table that's in front of us weekly and we do it um, because because it tells us the, the truth that forms who we are deep in our hearts, our identity for us as a church, that the good news is that Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so there is this invitation on a regular basis to say, God, this is where I'm at. This is what I've been lying to you about. This is what I've been hiding. This is what I've been doing on my own that I do not want you to have any say on or even know about. This is is me. And so would you take me as broken and sinful as I am? And if we can come and confess and say, God, this is wrong. He forgives. And we start walking with him again. We start being with him. The distance between us and God is not his doing it's ours. And we have this regular invitation to come to him. We need to hear the narrative that's going on in the life of the church at this time as we close. And it's, it's this, this first church scandal happens and right before it, Peter and John had been put in jail. And had been threatened not to speak of Jesus anymore. And they went back to their people, their community, and they said, Let's pray together and let's pray for more boldness to do the very thing they told us to stop doing. And they also said, Would you, God, would you bring signs and wonders and healing? And the very next thing that happens is that two people died. Okay, that's our episode right there. The very next verses say this. The apostle, it's not a, a Maybe it's going to be on the screen. It's verses 12 through 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnades, part of the temple. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. People continued to believe and follow. Ananias and Sapphira were just struck dead. More and more people continued to believe in Jesus and follow them. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Their prayers were answered in the midst of the first church scandal, revealed hearts and motives that led to sinful action where God punished severely on the spot and what happened, the church moved forward, their prayers were answered, more people came to know Jesus and people were healed and signs and wonders continued. That sin didn't derail the church. God's church will continue to move forward and we have this invitation, not just to be connected to God personally when we hear something that we need to confess and repent of, but because he's faithful to what he said he's gonna do and he's gonna continue to move forward we're going to continue to sing. And I want to, I want to end with these just four questions for you to consider as we come to this table. Anyone who believes in Jesus is invited to come to this table. The way that we do it here, as we know is we've got these little cups that represents Jesus' body, his blood shed and the little crackers that represent his, his body broken. Let me come to the table and you can take it and pray with one another. You can take it back to your seat. You can, you can drink and eat right at the table, however you want to do it. Would you consider these four questions as you come today? Where are you in danger of living, of living a lie or of active deceit? Whether it be to yourself, to others, or to the Holy Spirit. Again, where are you in danger of living a lie or of active deceit? Are you lying right now? Not only are you in danger of it, but are you lying right now about something? Number three, is there sin in your life currently that you are dismissing or minimizing? Is there sin in your life currently that you are dismissing or minimizing? Is there an area, number four, is there an area of your life that you are reluctant to surrender to God? Is there an area of your life that you are reluctant to surrender to God? Holy Spirit, as we did at the beginning, we invite you to move and work in each and every one of us. Would you reveal to ourselves where our hearts are at, where we've siphoned off part of us because we want to live on our own and not give you access to it? Would you remind us of your good news right now in this moment, Jesus, that you are faithful to forgive and to restore and to pick up and to move forward with us. That any distance we have is not of your doing, but it's on us. And would you give us a deep sense interpersonally in our own being, in our own minds and hearts that you are near, that you are close. And as you prompt us, Holy Spirit, would we confess and repent even in this moment right now and come to this table with a smile on our face, knowing that you love us, that you forgive us, and you're waiting to walk forward with us.